you have a Bible, you can open to Galatians chapter 4. We'll look at verses 4 through 7 this morning. And the text is also printed in the bulletin. Um, I listened to a podcast the other day, maybe a bit more than a week ago. Um, It's by a couple of English fellows who... They pointed out this analogy between Christmas gifts and the gospel. And one of them said that it was their family's tradition uh, not to place the gifts under the tree in advance. Not a couple days in advance or weeks in advance or however uh, long you have a Christmas tree and you've bought those gifts early. Not just to place them there, but to bring them out in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve while the children were sleeping so that they would wake up to the surprise, the surprise of gifts on Christmas morning. Uh, Of course, as you can imagine, this has the effect on children of building their anticipation even more than when they get to see those gifts there uh, for days or weeks in advance because they haven't sized up all the boxes. They haven't shaken all the boxes and uh, sort of figured out what's in them and uh, taken all the suspense out of the thing in advance, right? So uh, they they can't wait to see what comes on Sunday morning, uh, on Christmas morning. They can't wait to see what's there under the tree when they wake up after Christmas Eve is over and the, the new morning on Christmas morning, they can't wait. So with this tradition, uh, they were, they're deliberately calling attention to it's the surprise of Christmas, the startling surprise of Christmas, of the incarnation. It was into the darkness of the world that God shone the light of Christ. It was a new morning after a long spiritual night. It was while we were sleeping. It was while even we, we were spiritually dead, the scriptures say when he prepared and provided the gift of the Savior for us. The desperate longing and the anticipation had built for centuries, and then all of a sudden, at just the right time, when we needed him most, God sent his Son, and it was the most wonderful gift that he ever could give us. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, Christmas, Christmas Sunday, uh, from Galatians chapter 4. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, your word is lovely, and we pray that you would help us to recognize your word by your spirit. Help us to trust your word. Help us to celebrate your word and to proclaim your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son made of woman, made under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're going to pick up the basic thought uh, from the Christmas Eve homily that the whole gospel can be summed up in three little words. God became man. God became man. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. That's really the whole gospel communicated very succinctly. God became man. On Christmas Eve, we just suggested some of the infinite possible avenues for exploring the significance of that profound statement. We asked a lot of questions, suggested a lot of questions could be asked 
about this gospel, this Christmas gospel. So uh, this morning, we'll take a bit more of a leisurely stroll down some of those avenues together for exploring, uh, exploring the gospel of Jesus Christ. December 25th, that's Christmas. It doesn't necessarily mark the actual birthday of Jesus. Uh, I think we all know that. But Christmas is, it's the festival when the church has celebrated the incarnation. That's when the word of God, when God himself, the creator God himself, took on a human nature. He took on a created nature to himself. And he became a human being. So the God of light and life and love, the maker of all good things, the giver of every good and perfect gift, the one who has spoken the heavens and the earth into being, has spoken himself into creation in the person of Jesus. So when Paul writes about the birth of Jesus, like he does here, he uses a unique word. Uh, He uses it here in Galatians 4, and there's a footnote there uh, for you about that in the... um, the bulletins, uh, because we translated it a a little bit differently than it is in the ESV. Um, But whenever he speaks of ordinary human birth, he uses one word. He uses one word to talk about the the human birth of everybody, regular folk like us. But whenever he speaks of the birth of the God-man, he uses this particular word, which we've translated made. You could translate it, he became or happened. it's, It's just a bit of a different word than the one you would normally use for he was born, which ESV translates, he he was born of woman, born under the law. So we've translated it differently. We've set it apart. He's made of woman, made under the law. And the reason why we're we're recognizing the uniqueness of the word that's being used here uh, is in order to recognize the uniqueness of the reality, the uniqueness of the reality of Jesus' birth. So God the Son, we think of God, we have the triune God who's revealed to us in the scriptures, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Son is eternal. He's eternally begotten of God the Father. He lives forever. He has always lived. He did not just pop into existence 2,000 years ago, God the Son. But 2,000 years ago, God the Father sent his Son forth to become also a human. His humanity, in a sense, God popped into existence 2,000 years ago. The Gospels record for us that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, which we recite in our creed. This birth was unlike any other birth. The humanity of Jesus is a special creation. It's not like other births. It's the unique work of God. Jesus, who is uniquely, of all the people who ever lived, uniquely both God and man, He was not brought into the world by us. He was not brought into the world by human beings, the way other human beings are brought into the world by human beings. We could never produce this Savior. We could never produce the salvation that he brought through our own devices. He has come from the outside, as it were. God sent forth his son. So Jesus comes from God. Jesus comes from God. God's son coming into the world was God's plan. God's becoming man was God's idea. It was God's initiative. It was God's work from beginning to end. So Jesus reveals God to us. This is what it means when we say God is the one who sent Jesus. 
that Jesus reveals God to us. He's the God who would send this son, this Jesus Christ into the world. He reveals God's will. He reveals God's character and God's intentions and God's power, his kind of power. So when you read about Jesus in the scriptures, you're not just reading about a human being. You are reading about a human being, the true human being. But you're also reading about God. So you can have the full assurance that the gift of Jesus' life, all of it, it comes from God. It's like the Father is saying, here's my beloved Son, Jesus. I've loved you and I've given him for you. Give him your complete attention. Trust him and follow him. I am God. I approve this message. Right? We hear that kind of language in political campaigns, but God doesn't need your vote to be your Lord. He is your Lord. But he wants you to find your assurance in him. He wants to give you every assurance that Jesus was sent by God for you. If you want confidence in your relationship with God, it has to be a confidence that's based on God himself, on what he has done. So you ask questions like, can you really know God? Has that question ever disturbed you? Can you really know God? Yes, God sent his son so that you could know him. Can you really be reconciled to God? Yes, God sent his son for that very reason. Can you believe that God wants your good? Yes. He didn't hold back his own beloved son. He gave you the best gift that he could give you when he gave you his son. No one pressured him into doing that. No one coerced him or twisted his arm into loving you. He loves you and he gave his son Jesus for you. This is what's revealed in God sending his son into the world. You can't muster up knowledge of God. You can't muster up your own reconciliation to God. You can't even muster up faith or trust in God by yourself, by your own human power. But the good news is that God became man so that you could have all these assurances in him and from him. And all your confidence could be in him. So verses 4 and 5, God sent forth his son made under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So God sent Jesus into our place as those who are under the law. He sent Jesus to enter our place to rescue us from the mess that we've gotten ourselves into, which is a salvation through substitution. Right? So humanity, we had broken God's law. We all stood under God's law, condemned by God's law. That's what that means. We're all condemned by God's law. Have you ever ignored what God has said and done what you wanted to? Then you've sinned and you've broken God's law and you stand under God's law as a a condemned sinner in and of yourself. God's law is good. We bristle against it, but it's good. But when we had become evil through our sin, through our rebellion against God, then God's law stood opposed to us and it exposed us for the rebels that we are and we could only ever experience it it as convicting us of our sin. We only ever experience God's law as this weight, this oppressive weight that laid on us. But God wanted for us to enter into a new relationship with him, one where we could hear his law, not as oppressive or just 
condemning or even just exposing, but one where we could hear his law as, as life-giving. This is the way to have real life with God by listening to his word. He wanted us to be in that kind of relationship with him. He wants us to be free from the condemnation of the law, to hear his law as the word of a good father to his beloved child. That's what the word is, the scriptures. God's word as a good father to his beloved children. So he sent his son in order to fix that relationship and bring us into that place in our relationship with God, to redeem us, to restore us, to renew us. So at the cross, Jesus took the full condemnation of the law for us. He was made under the law so that all the condemnation for all our sin was placed on him, and he suffered it, and he died under, under that, the wrath of God so that we would never have to relate to God's law that way again. And because of this, as Paul says in Romans 8, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that relationship to God's law, one where it condemns you, it's gone. That, you don't, you're out from under that now. <clears throat> the Son of God took our humanity, he took the human relationship to God, the human relationship to God's word, and he made it what it should be, what God has always intended for it to be. And that means God sent forth his son, as it says in verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. So even though it would be fine to translate this, you know, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters, or adoption as children of God, This language is gender-specific. It's wonderfully gender-specific. And it should always remain so, so that we can understand what it means. Because it's not to say that it's exclusive of the female sex, right? It's it's not saying so that, that males might receive adoption as sons. I don't know about the females. It's not saying that. Precisely the opposite. It's actually tremendously inclusive to say that we all receive adoption as sons. What does that mean? The Son of God, the Son of God became a human, became a particular man, so that through him, any human, men, women, boys, girls, might be adopted by God the Father as sons. As sons. So, in the old world, and in biblical terms, In the long, cold, dark of night before Jesus came, in the old world, only sons could expect to receive a father's full love, full inheritance. And the firstborn son in particular, in the old world. In the new world, because of Christmas morning, we're all sons. There's no distinction between us anymore. As Paul said just before this in Galatians chapter 3, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring. You're heirs according to promise. Right? So in theological terms... God the Son enjoys a unique relationship with God the Father. But the Christmas gospel says that God the Son 
came to share his special status, his unique relationship with God as father, to share that with us. And this is how the church fathers and the greatest theologians have put it, and it's in several of the quotes that are there at the bottom of the page in the bulletin. They basically say, God became man so that mankind might become God. That's pretty strong language that all the theologians are using. It doesn't mean that God sent Jesus in order to give us the divine attributes that that we might consider to be the most important ones, the most unique ones, like his uh, omniscience. He knows everything. His omnipresence. He's everywhere all the time. Uh, Or his omnipotence. He can do all things, right? No, actually God does better than that for us. Through the Christmas gift, God gives us the gift of relationship with himself, which actually is absolutely fundamental to his nature. You want to know what makes God who he is? It's relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he gives us the true knowledge and the true presence and the true power of his divinity, his unique divinity, because he gives us the divine spirit of sonship to be able to relate to him as a son relates to the Father. So the Son of God came to make us sons, sons of God, to grant us his own unique relationship with God. His Father is our Father in the same way, the same spirit of sonship is ours. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So because of the incarnation of the Son of God, because of the birth of the Lord Jesus, because of who he is and everything he's done for us, we've been given this privilege of relating to God as God the Son himself relates to God. And that's what Peter comes to understand, and that's what Peter says in his second letter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness so that we may become partakers of the divine nature. So we take great care to confess that Jesus is fully divine and uniquely divine. That his being the son of the Father, it doesn't make him less divine than the Father. That actually his sonship, it means his divine nature. God himself is son. That's as true an aspect of his divinity as being father. God is father. God is son. God the son is who he is because of the divine spirit of sonship. And Jesus came to share this divine nature with us. That is the same Holy Spirit of sonship that makes God the son who he is. His being and his identity are established because of his relationship with the Father. And he grants us a share in this same relationship through adoption, and therefore the same identity. Jesus is uniquely God's Son, but we are truly welcome into God's family through adoption, through our baptism, as God's family name is placed on us. He came all the way down into our nature to bring us all the way up into his nature a nature which is defined by relationship with the Father. So Jesus doesn't just reveal God the Father to us. He does that. 
wonderfully. But he gives us his spirit so that we can pray, so that we can say, Abba, Father, when we're talking to God. He gives us his spirit so that we can speak to God as our Father, even as he does. He invites us to share in his own prayer, our Father. He gives us his identity as the Son of God, and he makes it our reality, our daily reality. So it seems like we should maybe consider it dangerous to suggest such a fantastic privilege as this. God became man so that we might become God and become partakers of the divine nature. But there it is, and this was God's idea. And this is why he sent his son. And this speaks to what God is like, and it speaks to his intentions toward us. So in the garden, the serpent was dead wrong when he suggested that God doesn't want us to be like him. God is stingy. God keeps the best back for himself. God wants to hold you back and keep you down. God has always intended to grant us the highest privilege to open his very life to us, to welcome us into the eternal relationship of the Son with the Father, to give the gift of his own spirit to us, and to share the triune glory with us and make us more like God than human or angel could ever imagine. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God, an heir, someone who receives the the inheritance. So the good news of our divine sonship in Christ, it's truly profound. God the Son came in the flesh to bring our humanity into his own divine relationship with the Father. Everything that's true of the Son of God in his relationship with the Father, everything that's true of Jesus in his relationship with God, becomes true of us as we're found in Christ by faith and united to him through his Spirit. So Jesus shares his inheritance, everything that's coming to him, everything that he deserves Everything the Father has promised him, Jesus shares it with us. And his inheritance is God. His inheritance is nothing other than God. We usually think of an inheritance as, um, you know, in just earthly terms, it's what your parents have that they give you when they die. Or somebody, an uncle, distant relative, whatever, right? We usually think of an inheritance as wealth or land or possessions or stuff, stuff that you get when someone dies. But the true wealth of God is the ever-living God himself who cannot die. And his life, his life is your inheritance in Christ. He is your inheritance. And he does now and he always will give himself to you in the Spirit. And so you share in the divine nature, and in all of its privileges, you share in the true knowledge of God, in the presence of God, in the power and lordship of God, the power and lordship of God's love. And you share in eternal life and resurrection life and heavenly glory because God has shared divine sonship with you, because he sent forth his Son to bring many sons to glory. As it goes with Jesus, so it goes with us. And because God is with Jesus, our representative forever, then he will be with us forever. And that was all God's idea. He's the one who started it. He's the one who sent his son. 
for these reasons. He is the one who secured our freedom from slavery to sin. He is the one who's brought us into this new relationship with himself. He's the one who's made us co-sons and co-inheritors with the Son of God, his beloved Son, Jesus. And all of it's true and can only be true because God became man. So Merry Christmas. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son for our adoption as sons. Jesus, thank you for coming and living and dying for us. Thank you for giving us your spirit so that we can call your Father our Father. Spirit, we thank you for bringing forth Jesus just when we needed him most and for bringing all the love of God into our hearts along with you and for helping us to pray and cry out to God as our Father, even as Jesus himself does. Please, Triune God, help us to enjoy the true gift of Christmas. Help us to find rest and good cheer and hope in Jesus' relationship with the Father. Help us to carry this relationship in ourselves everywhere we go at every moment and to share this good news freely with all the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.